You know what I learned about love? It isn't a virus that infects you, it's a choice. We choose to be in love and we choose what it makes us do. You earned your choice and you stole mine. I was ready to give up my entire life for you and you were ready to let me. Are you sure that you love me? Or are you just upset that I found out who you were and made a different choice? Love! Love is an excuse, an alibi, a justification for sex, but it is not something that should keep a man from keeping his promise, Ray. Hi, welcome back to The Shrew Review. Diving right into today's topic, these lines are from the 2003 film Deliver Us from Eva, starring Gabrielle Union and LL Cool J. Along with the 1999 teen rom-com romp 10 Things I Hate About You, these two films may be the most well-known adaptations of The Taming of the Shrew. Today, I'm going to talk about how these two films compare to The Shrew and each other and give my general review of what I like or maybe dislike about them. So, here we go. The true connective tissue between these two films, of course, is Gabrielle Union! Yay! She's amazing. Similar to Connor Ratliff's Dead Eyes quest to snag a conversation with Tom Hanks, I will throw this out there. If anyone listening knows Gabrielle Union or knows someone who knows her and can ask her if she would like to discuss these two films with me at a later date, please help Shrew out and email tragedyoftheshrew at gmail.com. Thank you in advance, universe. So it's interesting that these two films were released only four years apart and that Gabrielle Union goes from playing a teenager in 1999 to a grown-ass woman in 2003. Born in 1972, she would have been a 26, 27-year-old teenager for 10 Things and a real 31-year-old woman for Eva. But, you know, that's Hollywood, right? Always trying to accelerate the maturity of children and infantilize adult women. Hmm. Perhaps a topic to go deeper with another day. Okay, in 10 Things I Hate About You, Gabrielle plays Chastity, best friend sidekick to that film's Bianca, played by Larissa Olenek. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Chastity fills in the role of the widow from The Shrew. Thankfully, this film gives that character a little more screen time throughout the film rather than only in the Act 5 wedding scene. In Deliver Us from Eva, Gabrielle finally got to take center stage as the titular character Eva, i.e. The Shrew. I'm going to start with how these two film adaptations approach and are or are not faithful to Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. They are both shrew stories, yes. However, of course, I don't feel either one stays true enough to Shakespeare's version. Unfortunately, they do what most productions of the play attempt to do, which is to downplay the coercive, manipulative, 
abusive behavior of the men involved and up play, up play, is that a word? Did I Shakespeare coin a word? Uh, play up, I suppose is correct. Play up the supposed romance and love between Catherine and Petruchio. Let's not forget Shakespeare did not invent or create the shrew story as a genre. Like many of his plays, he drew from existing source material, such as historical people and events, or the social and political issues of his day, or common folklore. The issue of disobedient women was a real problem for early modern man. Let's go to the Arden third series for a moment and read from the introduction by Barbara Hodgson. Bear with me, please. It is important to establish the foundation of the shrew story. Quote, every man can rule a shrew, but he that has her, end quote, went just one of the many proverbial taunts that demonized the shrew or shrewish wife, positioning her as the test obstacle essential for positing the culture's terms for male dominance, not only over women, but over other men as well. Her figure's centrality emerges in a boisterous, shrew-taming tradition that includes proverbs, jokes, ballads, and oral folklore, as well as plays. All presume a hierarchical domestic order where women are subordinate to men, an order overturned by the shrew and righted by her tamer, and that is, quote, organized around a double standard for domestic violence, end quote. That is, just as tradition represents the shrewish woman as engendering domestic violence, so it assumes that her behavior justifies her husband in reasserting his mastery through reciprocal violence. Okay, me stepping out for a moment. This is all going to try to justify why the shrew is actually a better form of control than previously accepted through reciprocal violence or claiming that a woman was violent and therefore deserved violence in return. So back to Arden. Perhaps the most famous example of this tradition, a lengthy ballad entitled A Merry Jest of a Shrewd and Cursed Wife Lapped in Morals Skin for Her Good Behavior, written circa 1550. This ballad centers, like the shrew, on a family with two sisters. The younger, her father's favorite, pursued by suitors, the elder shrewish and considered unmarriageable, at least until a gullible suitor motivated by financial gain appears, at which point the story details this couple's courtship and marriage. Unlike the shrew, Mary Jest features a shrewish mother who has trained her firstborn daughter to seek mastery over her husband. While wrestling with her in the nuptial bed, that sounds gross. While wrestling with her in the nuptial bed, the husband hits his wife, promising not to do so again as long as she agrees, 
quote, in all sports to abide my will, end quote. But when she refuses to perform household duties, speaks lewdly and beats him as if she had been a man, he retaliates by beating her bared back with rods, drawing blood, then having killed Black Morel, his blind lame horse, and salted the hide, he wraps her raw and bleeding body in it, threatening to keep her there. Let's reiterate that. Beats his wife with a rod until she is bloody and broken, then wraps her whole body in a salted hide of a horse. So it's literally rubbing salt in her wounds and threatens to keep her there until she obeys. Only when she promises to do nothing that may pretend to displease you does he release her, which leads to a communal feast where she performs like a proper hostess and agrees to obey her husband in presence of people and eke alone. The tale concludes with an envoy, i.e. an outro line, resembling Petruchio's, quote, he that knows better how to tame a shrew, now let him speak also hinting at the play's final wager. Aside from briefly exploring the mother's and eldest daughter's agency as, quote, women on top, Mary Jest sides with the husband, affirming his dominance in the gender hierarchy and suggesting that violence, quote, seems to be a masculine prerogative that shrews usurp when they insist on wearing the breeches, they also seize the rod, end quote. In contrast to beating one's wife and wrapping her bloody body in a salted horse hide, disciplinary actions real women might not survive, Petruchio's tactics withholding food, sleep, and new clothes indeed seem designed to, quote, kill or tame a wife with kindness, end quote. Distinct differences pertain, however, between representations of supposedly comic shrew taming and the more complicated history of domestic violence in the early modern period. Wife beating was not illegal, but male violence was increasingly being questioned and monitored. <gasps> wow. Conduct books and sermons advise that good household government should not involve physical strife. Despite those who argued that even blows when provoked or deserved may well stand with the dearest kindnesses of matrimony, such conduct was increasingly viewed as incompatible with ideals of companionate marriage. Oh, beating your wife does not lead to a happy life? Huh, imagine that. Even stronger structural resemblances to the taming plot surface in oral folklore traditions. John Harold Brunvald's exhaustive study of tale type 901, 
as classified by Arn Thompson. So the Arn Thompson tail type database, for those who may not be familiar with it, it is just basically a list of all the story types that are out there. So the shrew story is tail type 901 out of some 2000 types. And these are oral traditions, basically all the fairy tales that have ever existed. Any story that is well known over time has been categorized and listed in this Arn Thompson database. So this is interesting stuff that we're going to get into. This is what is a shrew story. So the study of tail type 901, a narrative that occurs throughout the Indo-European world, presents a compelling map of the shrew's plot events, as well as a comprehensive catalog of local detail. Surveying 35 literary versions and 383 oral versions, representing 30 countries or national groups, Brunband identified a wide range of motif complexes and free-floating narrative elements common to such tales. This is something I just find utterly fascinating that we may not really be aware of, that 35 versions, 383 oral versions representing 30 countries or nationalities, this is a story that's been told and told and told. We generally only these days know of Shakespeare's version of it in common knowledge, but he didn't come up with it. He just wrote, as far as I'm concerned, the definitive version of it, which is, in fact, the most tragic version of it. So what are the motif complexes and narrative elements common to such tales. They are, the taming is a play within a play or story within a story. The shrew is usually the elder of two daughters and is identified with the devil. The father, a wealthy man, warns the prospective suitor and offers a large dowry. The suitor claims that he can tame the shrew and lays a bet that he can do so. At the wedding, the groom arrives late, is dressed poorly, and rides an old nag. He has a falcon, he behaves boorishly, and refuses to stay before beginning the trip home, during which bride and groom ride on one horse, or the husband rides while the wife walks. The taming occurs at the couple's home or on a trip to visit the wife's parents. The husband beats his servants and or punishes his dog for a supposed fault as a warning to his wife. There is a school where husbands learn shrew taming. Taming tactics include depriving the wife of food and getting her to agree to her husband's absurd statements. Several tales include the husband calling the sun the moon and a man a woman, i.e. gaslighting. The test of the wife's obedience takes place after dinner at the father-in-law's house. During the test, the wife looks over some new clothes. The reward is a prize offered by the father-in-law. The wife comes at once when called and is polite to all. She throws her cap on the floor and steps on it, pulls off her husband's boots to clean them, 
places her hand under his foot, brings other wives in and lectures them, kisses her husband. Others concede that the shrew's husband has won the victory. Claiming that the basic tale reaches back to early medieval exemplum literature, Brunbond makes a strong case that Shakespeare adapted traditional English versions to suit the conditions of his stage. Treating the shrew taming tradition as culminating in Shakespeare, he argues that the shrew remains closer to oral traditions than a shrew, the taming of a shrew, the anonymous version, which Thompson views as evidence of the shrew's priority. Basically, the shrew, the shrew is a better version than a shrew. Agreed. Although no definite proof suggests that oral tradition offered the primary model for Shakespeare, the discovery of variant shrew taming tales throughout Northern Europe and the British Isles suggests that early modern audiences might have been preconditioned to enjoy the taming spectacle. Several folktale motifs do not appear in the shrew. So those aren't the only ones, those are just the ones we are most familiar with. Um, the ones that do not appear in the shrew include in one variant of the tale's conclusion, the couple reach an understanding that the husband will in future give back whatever treatment she gives him. A shred of equality or a hint that the shrew wife is never well and truly tamed. Mm, that's what they want you to believe. And just as Petruchio does not physically abuse Katharina, there is no mention of killing or torturing recalcitrant animals as an object lesson, nor does he break her arm or require that she carry the horse's saddle. So again, oh, we're trying to say that the tactics he uses aren't that bad. Nonetheless, ballads, verse tales, and folk literature sought, as Joy Wiltenberg observes, to pressure women to avoid rebellion in favor of submissiveness. Pressure women to avoid rebellion in favor of submissiveness. Oh, I cannot wait until I get to produce my own version. I can't help picturing how I want to direct Katharina's last words in my production. But back to 10 things I hate about Eva. So how do they incorporate these motif complexes? Well, the one motif complex employed in both films relies mostly, almost solely, on the single one. The suitor claims that he can tame the shrew and lays a bet that he can do so. This really is the whole crux of what both of these films rely on. We don't see any of the bad behavior by the groom, the Petruchio character. We don't see the arriving late to the wedding, the dressing poorly, behaving badly, boorishly. We don't see depriving the wife of food or sleep or the predatory isolation of forcibly removing her from her own wedding feast. We don't see 
getting her to agree to her husband's absurd statements that the sun is the moon, the gaslighting. We don't see that in these two films. The In Eva, there's a little bit for sure from the brothers-in-law, but not from Petruchio, LL Cool J. We don't see the test of obedience, the coming when called or bringing the other wives in to lecture them. We don't see placing her hand beneath her husband's foot. And we do not see anyone other than the wife, the Catherine, the shrew character, declaring victory for the husband. She's the only one that gives him a victory. Spoiler alert, you know how these films end most likely. If you know The Taming the Shrew, you know that, of course, they end up together. I will spoil a lot of details about both of these films. Stop now and go watch them if you want to. They are actually both currently available on Hulu and I think also Disney Plus. So head right over there and watch them now. All right. In Shrew and Elsewhere, the Shrew's father and other men who wagered over the taming of Katharina declare Petruchio husband victorious. He is given a second dowry and prize for her huge display of obedient submission. In both of these films, the big prize is the relationship itself. They have the falling out, they have the dark night of the soul, where it looks like the relationship is over, but of course, in the end, it's happily ever after. That's the big prize. It's something that comes from the woman herself, not from the men who placed the bet in the first place. Both Ten Things and Eva have acts of submission by the shrew that are true acts of love. They're not forced to submit for survival. They are, I am in love with this man and I can't do anything about that. Both characters forgive their love interests for any transgressions. They both find out about the wager and are furious, insulted, and injured by the sense of betrayal. They discover the man they were falling for was only there dating them, interested in them, because he was paid to be, at least at first. In both films, the Petruchio character is initially only there for the money, but truly does fall for the shrew at the same time that she is falling for him. He is repentant for his failures and swears that he is a changed man because of loving her and shows his love with a grand romantic gesture. They have both been changed by love and are willing to go the distance. Dun, 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 dun. This is what people out there productions, scholars, directors, this is what they want Shakespeare's play to be. But that is not in the text. It's not. Review all the list of things that were not included 
in this film. These films are both romantic comedies. They do not include big, big chunks of the taming of the shrew plot. Again, they only focus on the one motif of man claims he can tame the shrew, places a bet on whether or not he can. That's also the huge difference. Let's talk about these Petruchios. In 10 Things I Hate About You, Heath Ledger plays Patrick Verona. And in Deliver Us From Eva, James Todd Smith, aka LL Cool J, plays Raymond Adams. These are both some sexy mother lovers, okay? I've said it before, I'll say it again. Heath Ledger broke my heart almost as much as River Phoenix. One of the damn greats, gone too soon. I will never forgive you for leaving us so early. Heath is so damn good in anything he ever did, and he is just absolutely irresistible in this film. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. He and I would be almost the same age, so it still it sometimes feels weird looking back on young Heath Ledger as a grown woman and feeling a little icky about it, but I was the same age when that movie came out. Anyway. LL Cool J gets top billing for this film over our girl Gabrielle Union. I'm a little offended by that, but granted, at the time, he would have been more of a household name that could draw people to the theater. And one of the best things about this film that Joyce Green McDonald notes in her essay in the Art and Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, The State of Play uh, collection of essays. Joyce Green McDonald has an essay titled Remaking Marriage in a Black Adaptation, where she notes, white people are not the intended audience. Black people are, especially black women, as the film draws on materials from a vast archive, institutions, and cultural productions that include Shaka Khan as well as Shakespeare. So I get it. If you're trying to get a black audience to come to the theater, especially black women or any woman, I think it's a safe bet that Mr. James Todd Smith, aka LL Cool J, is going to bring out all the ladies of any race, creed, or country of origin. The nickname LL Cool J does mean ladies love Cool James. Accurate. The man is attractive. I cannot tell a lie. Not the greatest actor in the world, but his sex appeal is... Uh, dynamite. Hot. He is in this movie. Okay, all right. Let me cool down. Okay. The most blatant difference both of these films have between 
them and Shakespeare's is that these Petruchios are not Shakespeare's Petruchio. Heath Ledger and LL Cool J both make grand gesture declarations of love and affection. Heath Ledger makes two of them. We all know that bleacher performance of Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. It is eye-freaking-conic. Iconic. I would venture that for the average person who's only seen this movie once, or maybe not all the way through, or someone who's even only seen trailers or clips, that moment is what we all remember. Everyone knows the singing on the bleachers scene. It is rom-com gold. Ugh, it's perfection. Then, at the end of the film, he uses the money he was paid to date Cat to Cat Julia Stiles to buy her the Fender Stratocaster guitar that she's been wishing over and pining to have. Gabrielle Union's Eva was prepared to sacrifice her own ambitions and give up a great job offer in Chicago to stay with LL in LA until she finds out about him being paid to date her. She leaves him and the city to take the job. He sells his home that he just bought thanks to the extra money he made by dating her, buys her a horse and rides it into the office building where she now works in Chicago. He ships a horse across the country and rides it into the lobby of an office building to prove his love. He even tumbles off the horse once he's inside as it's already been established. Riding is her thing that she loves and is good at and he's a big old buffoon who falls off the horse but keeps getting back on. It also gives her a little more superiority over him to be better at this and the fact that he's okay with failing is pretty progressive. It's wonderful to see a man who is okay with a woman who can beat him at something, who's better at something than he is. So in that respect, it's all a very go-woman kind of film. But him riding that horse is all things cheesy as hell. It's a little weird, maybe a little stalkery, but a grand romantic gesture that wins her heart. And then they literally ride off into the sunset together with her, of course, sitting in front as the dominant and superior partner. That is not how the taming of the shrew ends. Must I repeat myself? That is not how it ends. People want to sun moon gaslight you into thinking it ends with a happy loving moment, but it does not. Katharina is nothing more than submissive. Don't give her the Mary Pickford wink at the audience to say, I'm just pretending we're not only equals, I have the upper hand, I'm still dominant. No, that's not what's happening. 
That is not the text. Neither of these films do full justice to Katharina's great death speech. They just, they do not. And it's, it's really disappointing that neither character, neither Julia Stiles' cat or Gabrielle's Eva get a really, really powerful speech. I will say, we know the other iconic moment of 10 things that most people know is Julia Stiles' poem at the end. It is lovely. It's a very sweet poem. It's nicely and appropriately written for a teenage girl in the Pacific Northwest of the 1990s. It's Julia's best acting moment of the film, perhaps even of her entire career. I read some IMDb trivia the other day that says, according to the DVD extras, her reading of the poem was the first and only take. Her tears at the end were real and unplanned. So it's a great moment. It really is. I will go ahead and read the poem now just for reference. I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call but mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close, not even a little bit, not even at all. It's, I don't know why it even like gets me teary reading it. It's ridiculous. It's so simple, but yeah, I, it's just well done. And it's a great moment. And watching the film, every time I've watched it, I get choked up at the end. That's what they want from you. They want you to root for her to be with Heath Ledger. It is a great moment, but it is not Katharina's Act 5 speech. This is a submission, not to the overbearing patriarchy that is too big for one woman alone to smash. This is a girl who has had her heart broken by a boy who she reluctantly gave it to in the first place. Just when she thought she could trust him, she finds out she's been lied to, manipulated, and used. That's not a surprise for Katharina, the original shrew. The payment of the suitors to Petruchio is not a big reveal for Katharina in the shrew. It wouldn't necessarily be a surprise for her if she found out about it. She knows her father will give any man who marries her a dowry. She doesn't necessarily know that Bianca's suitors also paid Petruchio to marry her, but that would be irrelevant to her feelings about him if she found out. That's not when or why Shakespeare's Katharina has a reversal. Remember, reversal is a crucial element to an Aristotelian tragic plot. Katharina's reversal of submission comes when she gives in to the sun mooning gaslighting in Act 4. When she breaks down and says what Petruchio demands she say, even when she knows it is not true, 
that is her breaking point. That is her reversal because what she cares about more than herself in that moment is getting to her little sister's wedding. Katharina's reversals are not about loving Petruchio as so many producers and directors want to convince themselves. They want to somehow make that moment in the sun moon about, oh, oh, isn't he silly? Okay, whatever. I'll just give in to whatever he says because I love him. No, that is not the text. That can't be a motive. It doesn't make sense as a motive. Katharina's reversals are about loving Bianca. Her reason for giving in in the act for Sun Moon is because she has to get to her sister. She could turn around. Petruchio threatens, fine, say what I want you to say or we'll turn around. She could turn around. It's not about loving him. It's about loving Bianca. Katharina's speech at the end of Act 5 is a warning to her sister. Here is how you stay secure and safe. There's no use in fighting. Just give in. We cannot win. It's sad and tragic. So Kat's speech is really about a girl with a broken heart. It's not about placing her hand beneath her husband's foot. It's a girl who is in love and just wants some reassurance that she is loved in return. That's not what Katharina deals with. Gabrielle Union also gets robbed of a truly great speech and they set her up for one and then they don't deliver and it's deliver me from that. I, I'm very upset about it. She does get many fun and funny moments of nasty woman attitude. You can tell she is having a great time playing Eva. She is forceful and powerful. The character is so much so that she even belittled and berated one previous suitor so badly that he now suffers PTSD and has developed a stutter. Deliver Us from Eva also delivers Eva some very cruel blows. <sighs> this this movie is kind of bonkers in some ways. It veers off from the shrew in a few different ways. One is we have four total sisters. I suppose that is to have all four of the suitors from the shrew actually get to hook up with someone. It could have taken something from the Taming of a Shrew, which has three couples end up together total. So I think perhaps the reason to have the four total sisters is about solidarity and that on its face, I, I get behind totally. There, There's a lot about it that I do respect and appreciate, just noting that it's not true to Shakespeare. It, it takes its own turns and makes a lot of its own choices, some of which are really weird and are very cruel and abusive, actually. We do get some 
kind of horrible emotional abuse. We have the four total sisters, the Dandridge sisters, who the brothers-in-law like to say are so fine, their father's penis should have been bronzed for producing them. We get a lot of Shakespearean dick jokes in this film. I don't know the exact reasons for making this choice, but again, these guys are the absolute worst. They are not nice people. Although we don't have starving, sleep deprivation, physical cruelties toward Eva, they do one of the most effed up and cruel things I could ever imagine. Again, spoiler alert, when it looks like their plan to get Eva out of town is failing because she and Ray are actually falling in love and she wants to stay in town to be with him, the brothers-in-law flip out. They kidnap Ray, hold him hostage, shackling him with chains and whatnot, and convince Eva that he died and his body was incinerated in the car wreck that killed him. So there's no remains for her to look at. There's no body because it burnt up in this crash. They hold a funeral for Ray. Eva is at the funeral, brokenhearted and devastated that the one man who actually was stepping up to the plate and he was being a good guy. He does a lot of things leading up to this that really you you would fall for. You love him. He supports her, stands up for her at this big event with an ex who had previously broken her heart, gives her some good loving, lots of things that give her good reason to fall for him. And then she is told he is dead. She's experiencing real grief and trauma until Ray breaks out of his shackles and crashes his own funeral, confessing the whole truth. about. He comes in and tells her that he was paid and all of that. And now, of course, she's devastated even more so to find out he's a liar. And now she's really leaving him and leaving town. So yay, the asshole brothers-in-law got what they wanted all along. Good for them. Leaving the funeral, Eva tells them, you have yet to feel my rage. Which is well-deserved. This trick was cruel and very, very abusive. She has every right to feel tons of rage and they deserve to have it unleashed upon them again and again. And then she never unleashes it. She never gets to show them her rage. If you are going to take the route of making the film a rom-com, then you gotta give Katharina, you gotta give the shrew a big moment of victory. In both of these films, it just kind of falls flat in that regard. In 10 Things I Hate About You, Larissa Olenek's Bianca gets a better moment than Kat does, and then there's none here at all. 
for Gabrielle Union. Larissa Olenek gets to punch the Hortensio character in the face at the prom. And I think she, she does three things. That's for making my date bleed. That's for my sister. And that's for me. She kicks him in the nuts too at the end because that character also had treated Kat very poorly in the past. Did a whole hit it and quit it thing when she was a young girl. And really all of Kat's issues up to this point are from having been coerced into sex and then dumped. And she's, it's not quite an assault, but for her to feel some trauma and pain and rage after how poorly she was treated by this douchebag dude at the tender age of 14 or 15 is certainly justifiable in her having some anger and depression issues. Anyway, I, I still don't understand why Gabrielle Union does not get that moment of rage in this film. What happened? Did something get cut? Was it too hard of a speech to write for these male writers? She does have a kind of sad final speech of submission, and it's to these asshole brothers-in-law. Her big speech is not even very long. The three guys are gathered in the living room, and she comes in, my sisters love you so much. I was just a distraction and a huge pain in the ass, and I am so sorry. We dissolved the Dandridge Fund and split it up yesterday. The Dandridge Fund, oh, that's a whole other thing that is annoying. The sisters, when their parents died, started putting money into a bank account for all of them. And then these jerks somehow think they have a claim to that money, which they don't. And I guess it does come into the whole dowry. I, it, it must, it represents a dowry. All right. Yeah, I get it. It's just maddening and frustrating that they think they have a claim to it. Her speech of submission is to these jerks, not to her sisters. So remember, Catherine's speech is to her sister. It's her warning, here's how to stay safe. That is the motif complex of the shrew bringing the other women together to lecture them about something. It's an undeserved speech. These, these guys did not do not deserve her forgiveness in no way. And there's nothing they've even done in between the time there's this short little montage. She has a scene with, with Ray LL Cool J where she tells him the, the line I read at the beginning about love being a choice, but then she chooses to leave. And these guys do nothing to deserve her forgiveness. And that is the one thing that I really dislike about this film, that they get off easy, they get everything they wanted, and there's no comeuppance for them. There really should have been. They, oh, their wives and girlfriend didn't talk to them for a couple of weeks. Oh, wah. No, they should have been punished much more. Eva's speech is a sacrifice for 
her sisters in a way. She is the leader of this family. They, She's the oldest. They all look up to her. They follow her lead. So she knows that her sisters will not forgive their men until she does. So I guess she's sacrificing for them, but I'd still much rather she spoke to them and they had another real moment have that motif in there because it's really important. She could teach them something. She role models forgiveness to her sisters, but again, excuse me, these dickwads did nothing to deserve forgiveness. They faked her lover's death. She was devastated. That's absurd. It's out there. It pushes the boundaries, but it's not really that funny. They try to make it funny, but it's emotional abuse. So I guess it does give us a hint of tragedy and I guess her rolling over and just taking it is pretty freaking tragic. These guys deserve a beat down though. That's how Eva the Shrew is changed or tamed in this story. The old Eva would have ripped them a new one, would have given them PTSD like the other guy, but this Eva just gives up and I don't feel like it's deserved. But maybe it is a little closer to Shakespeare than I originally thought. And also why it's not satisfying in a romantic comedy. Because it's just sad. It's really sad. We have three people credited as screenwriters, including the director, Gary Hardwick. They do get this one thematic element very right. Eva has sacrificed for her sisters their whole lives. Since their parents died when Eva was only 18, and as the oldest, she was left to be both mother and father to her younger sisters. Their bond is unbreakable and beautiful. I do, I love it. I love the bond with the sisters and seeing women who are not competing and fighting over men, and they're not jealous or having extra rivalries. They just love each other. It's That's really quite nice. I love that part. But because these women love each other so much and they are a tight unit and their bond is unbreakable, of course, these jackass brothers-in-law have to try to break it. They don't like Eva. She's too bossy and exacting and she takes away time. They could be cuddling or making babies with their wives. There's another element of that. There's the one guy who really just wants to cuddle with his wife, but then he's like ashamed to admit that to the other guys. And there's comedy in it, but it, it there's so much toxic masculinity in it of why can't he just be the guy that really loves to cuddle with his wife and loves his wife so much? Why does he have to be so jealous and possessive of her that he can't stand that his sister-in-law takes time away it it's annoying but again you know one crucial piece in this film that differs between the two of them is the significance of sisterhood they both eventually get there but deliver us from eva really gets it right 10 things i hate about you does what most productions of the shrew do which is emphasizing primarily the jealousy and sibling rivalry between Katharina and Bianca. Some acknowledge the spoiled brattiness of Bianca, 
ooh, look, maybe she's a shrew too. In the final scene of the play, Bianca does show her true colors at last. She's not that different from Catherine by calling out Lucentio's foolishness to have placed a bet on her own obedience in the first place. Maybe all the purity and sweetness persona was a big fat act. Ah, she's been a shrew all along. This attitude toward her is generally used, I believe, as another means of downplay to soften the blow of Katharina's death speech. The rom-com devotees claim, see, everyone knows the women really run the house. No one's in any real danger here. Bianca is the same way, but it could, however, go another way. Bianca can recognize the great sacrifice her sister makes and the injustices done against her. She can rise up against the patriarchy herself to say, this is not okay. Bianca does get that redemption in 10 Things when she kicks Joey Donner's ass, the Hortensio guy, at the prom. But 10 Things takes far too long before she gets there. This Bianca is a biatch from the get-go. I, not get-go, get-go. I cannot stand how she treats Kat. It is completely unjustified and doesn't make her likable at all. I guess it's a choice to make us love her at the end, but it I don't like it. Early on when dad says, oh, Bianca can date if Catherine does, and then she begs Kat to go to this big party so she can go too. She begs and, please do this for me. Please, please be my sister. Please do this for me. And Kat does. And then once they get to the party, Bianca won't even speak to her. She will not talk to her sister in public. She's nasty and rude and hateful to her. WTF? Where is the gratitude? She squeals and group hugs Kat with Gabby Union when she gets to go out for the first time, but she never utters the words thank you to Kat until their final scene together at the almost very end of the movie. I hope the screenwriters, Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith, made this choice because it also shows Kat's unconditional love for her sister, which I believe Katharina has. No matter how badly they behave toward each other with whatever judgment and spite, no matter how insulting Bianca is to her, Kat's love for her sister will win out. She loves Bianca more than her pride or even herself. She will risk humiliation. She will risk her heart and more as a sacrifice for her sister's happiness. That's lovely. I do think the writers got that part right. It's very clear throughout the film that everything Kat does is for the sake of her sister. And that's what more productions need to do. Overall, I just appreciate more the way the sisters were presented in Deliver Us From Eva 
They were a united front from the beginning. In the middle of the film, there's a little bit of jealousy and friction because, you know, at some point we need some conflict somewhere. But it was also between Eva's two younger sisters, not between Eva and any of them. For the most part, all the way through, the sisters were one for all and all for one. And that's what the brothers-in-law couldn't stand. Their jealousy that their wives might love something or someone more than them drove their cruelty, made them commit obnoxious, horrible acts of emotional abuse. And it's a little pathetic. That's my take on these two films. Overall, do I like them? Yes. I recommend them on their own merits. Probably recommend 10 Things I Hate About You a little bit more because I just feel like there are logic issues and some plot holes with Deliver Us from Eva. Their whole setup in the beginning doesn't make a whole lot of sense that they hire Ray to date her and their plan is that he's going to date her and then tell her he's moving away so that she'll move away with him. But yet he never had any plans to move away. And he's doing all of this in the first place so that he can buy a house. It's very thin. Yes, that ends up being what happens. Eva gets the job and moves away and then Ray follows her, but their plan never would have worked out or made any sense. It was a bad plan from the beginning. So I just feel like they could have worked a little bit harder to make that more realistic and to make it make sense. Yeah, it bothers me as a writer. The things to love about Deliver Us from Eva are the performances and, and the actors. Kim Whitley has a lovely role off the wall, hysterically funny character as the owner of the beauty salon where the girls hang out. She is very funny. I love her a lot. I got to work with her once and she's very, very funny in this. Again, lots of dick jokes and absurdity. Oh, I have to mention, both of these films have kind of one of my pet peeves in movies. They both have scenes where people are playing pool. I am a pool player. That is my other passion outside of entertainment. In 10 Things, Lucentio and Tranio characters, uh, Cameron James, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Michael Ekman, played by David Krumholtz, come looking for Patrick Heath Ledger in a pool hall. It's weird. We see Heath Ledger, like, put the cue ball down. I don't know if the other player had scratched or whatever, but it doesn't feel fully authentic. But that's kind of hidden behind them walking in. So they walk into this pool hall. They're walking past a table. These other two guys are playing a game. Big, tough, biker-looking dudes playing the game. One guy is shooting on the eight ball. It's going toward the pocket. It's a fine, perfect shot. It's going in. David Crumholtz picks up the eight ball. He's just walking past the game. 
checking out the play. So what's going on in here? Oh, let me pick up this ball and look at it and then drop it down. R ruining the guy's game, ruining his shot. He would have won the game. I see that. I want to scream and jump through the screen and strangle him. And these biker dudes should have strangled him. The fact that they don't react enough, it, it their reaction is not realistic. One of the guys hands over money. So there was clearly money on the game. No, no, that's, that's not okay. It's not acceptable. And he should have had a beat down for that move, whatever. And then later on, uh, I think Heath Ledger makes a shot. Anyway, they play the game in a way that just is not true to the game. Also in Deliver Us from Eva, they go over to Ray's house where he has a pool table and not much other furniture. And they are playing, but we never actually see them shoot. So they're probably not making any of the balls that they're shooting at. But the game itself doesn't make sense because Ray keeps shooting. It's Eva's turn, but then she never takes a shot. And then Ray just takes another shot. It's out of order. It's frustrating. Pet peeve of mine. Nobody else, I'm sure, really cares or notices. But if you watch that, the pool game does not make sense. And then, annoyingly, they wrap up the scene with her saying, Okay, show me how to make this shot. And then he has to come and do the stereotype trope of, Oh, okay, let me put my arms around you and get all close to you with showing you how to shoot a stick. Why can't Eva just know how to play? Huh? Does she have to play that damsel girly girl oh show me how to do it no i would have rather she kicked his ass in that game of pool but you know that's the film that i'm writing i would say one other major point of discussion would be that both of these films are successful in pointing out how much men seek to control and have dominance over women and their bodies. The father in 10 Things I Hate About You is a gynecologist and his main fear is that either of his daughters will get pregnant and it's used for comic effect. It's mildly amusing but it's disturbing under the surface because this needs to change in our society. Any man thinking that he can control whether a woman has sex, having any say whatsoever. Yes, they're his daughters. Yes, they're underage. Sure, they should be careful with a lot of things, as any teen should be. But his obsession with it is creepy. It's definitely controlling. And it's definitely, again, infantilizing. How about this man who is a gynecologist having real, honest, meaningful conversations with his daughters about what sex is and what it means and when it's good and when you should do it? We could have a real conversation that's not about just, no, you must be pure. Controlling a woman's purity Time to get over that, boys. Let's let's stop with that. Telling any woman 
of any age, what she can or cannot do with her body. Yeah, that's where we are right now. It's infuriating. We all feel it. It's why I'm here. I have to just stand up and say, back off, mind your own business. Let me do what I want with my life. I would be remiss not to acknowledge and recognize and shout out the incredible protests and uprising currently happening in Iran. And to that end, I will read a little bit from an article titled, I'm a member of Gen Z from Tehran. World, please be the voice of the people of Iran. Hello world, my name is Sarah. I am a 22 year old student in the capital Tehran. I share a story that doesn't just belong to me. It's also the story of many inside my country. Throughout my life, I've learned that my country is different and its rules are difficult. I've also learned while growing up that I must not speak out about my rights. Otherwise, I could be imprisoned, exiled, or even worse. Here in my country, I could die for not approving of the Islamic Republic's laws, which have oppressed my generation and generations before me. Until the age of about 13 or 14, I knew very little about the obligations women and young girls faced in my country, particularly mandatory hijab. Imagine suddenly going through such a shift in your life and not even being prepared for it, since your family never formally introduced you to this piece of fabric that could cause trouble. You see, anything in Iran can easily be a crime, including showing some hair. This time we saw a so-called crime lead to the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, the woman whose name has been heard around the world. She was beaten by the morality police and later died, we believe, as a direct result of her treatment at the hands of the authorities. The morality police are always there on our streets waiting for us. I can't even begin to tell you how unsafe I've felt whenever I wanted to go out, or how many times I've nearly crashed my car because I was trying to fix my hijab while driving because there were morality police up ahead. Imagine the whole world being your prison. That's what it's like to live in Iran. My message to you is that we are not tired of fighting because we know that the destiny of our nation lies in our own hands. We weren't always a sad people or people who suffered. There was a time when Iran was free and happiness wasn't a crime. I was privileged enough to study English and have access to sources in English, which is important because the censorship in our state media and even educational resources is incredibly damaging to the way that young minds develop. Having that privilege allowed me to pursue intellectual independence in my country. That is the most dangerous way of fighting against ignorance. You could be a spark of hope in our dark days. Tell the world about us and let the world know the names of those we have already lost. Masa Gina Amini, Hanane Kia, Ghazale Chalavi, Danesh Ranama, Reza Zari, Zakaria Soleimani, and many others. Tell the world about the brave freedom fighters, activists and journalists like Nilufar Hamidi, who first reported on Masajina Amini, 
who have been arrested at protests or in their homes. For the first time in a long time, the whole country has taken action. This time we will not be silenced by the government's bullets. For every fallen, many rise in the name of freedom. Woman, life, freedom. To read the complete article from Sarah and to learn more about this and other global issues and challenges, visit AtlanticCouncil.org. And now back to my reviews. I promise I'm about to wrap this all up. The men in Deliver Us from Eva are obsessed in different ways with controlling their women. One is desperate to have a baby. One is obsessed with this Dandridge fund and wants to get his hands on it which again, you have no right to that. These are big issues that shouldn't necessarily be trivialized as comedy. They could be satirized, and in some ways they are. These are 20-year-old films. I don't know that anyone would want to do it this way today, but let's get men's hands off our bodies and lives. The fact that any one of these male characters think that they can control the choices of any of the women, especially of Eva, who they have no relationship with her. Why do they get to say what she does? Why do they get to decide she's bossy and annoying and we want her out of our lives when she's a central figure in the lives of their wives? Those are the things that do make both of these films a little bit eh. Nonetheless, overall, they are successful rom-coms, not direct adaptations. Again, they only take the one angle of the shrew and ride that all the way into the sunset. But overall, there are at least 10 things to love about Eva and Kat. My next episode, I will have a guest. I'll be speaking with University of Regina professor Dr. Jan Pernis about the phrase veil your stomachs and her research and study of the early modern stomach. Thank you for listening dear shrews and as Eva did not get a chance to do may you always have the strength and courage to let your tongue tell the anger of your heart. And may you always be free as you please, even to the uttermost. This has been a Luna Loba creation.